Okay. Today we're going to look at 2 Peter. We finished 1 Peter. We're going to get into 2 Peter now. And this is an entirely different book. Last, you know, the last book we looked at, The New Life, what it means to have the new life in different areas. In this book, Peter is addressing a group of people who are really under siege from false teachers. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. There's a lot of false uh, perceptions of what needs to happen. They're, in fact, he's going to spend the entire chapter, chapter 2, talking about the marks of a false prophet, of marks of a false teacher. And let me go ahead and give you a little bit of understanding there. When he looks at that, he's not going to focus purely on their doctrine that they teach. In fact, what you're going to recognize as we go through that passage is that he doesn't really talk about their doctrine, but what he talks about is their lifestyle and their motivation. And if you read this passage, and I encourage you to go ahead and read ahead, if you read chapter 2, it will scare you because when you look at, look at the motivation of some ministers in evangelical circles today, it almost matches up with what you read in chapter 2, that they're in it for themselves. And by being in it for themselves, they lead others astray. So we're going to look at people who are under siege by false teachers. Now, when we get into chapter 1, he's going to lay down some foundational truths concerning spiritual maturity. Now, why would that be necessary? Let me just ask you this right off the bat. Why do you think he needs to spend some time talking about spiritual maturity to a bunch of folks who are really under siege by false prophets? Why do you think he needs to do that? Yeah, Luke. Okay, he wants to prepare them so that they're not going to be deceived or pulled away. So, for instance, when we get into the passage next week, he says to you, I don't tire in telling you the same things over and over again. Let me explain something to you. Christianity is repetition. It's not something new. Whenever somebody comes up to you and says, I found something new in the Bible, that should scare you. Because there is nothing new. The truths have been there for, for 2,000 years or more, especially with the Old Testament. So, here's what I'm trying to say to you. It's, it's to prepare you to know what false doctrine is. Now, you say, okay, well, that's good. What has that got to do with me, George? Well, let me explain something to you. I just said it already. It's kind of scary when you look around today. You and I are constantly being bombarded with false doctrine, either intentional or unintentional. You say, what do you mean, Unintentional. Well, sometimes we can unintentionally give each other false doctrine, and that can affect the way you think. So, for instance, let me give you one that is very common in our circles. We'll pick on Bruce here for a minute, all right? Let's say Bruce has a terrible week. He has a riot among his workers at YBC. His truck breaks down. While it's breaking down, four tires go out of it. Sewage backs up at the house. And he's got all kinds of problems happening. Just one thing after another. And he's down. I mean, he, he doesn't, he's like, man, what is going on? So he goes and talks to some Christian friends. Let me pick on a Christian friend here. Okay, he goes and talks to Jack. And, and so he talks, he's telling Jack all the problems that are happening and everything. And here's what happens. Jack says to him, well, there must have been sin in your life. God must be getting you for something you haven't dealt with. Is there some unconfessed sin? How many of you have faced that kind of thing before? When you've gone through struggles, believers saying to you that it has something to do with something in your life. They're like Job's comforters. 
That's exactly what they are, aren't they? Now, now, here's the thing. Why do I say that's unintentional? First of all, it's unintentional because that person isn't necessarily trying to spread false doctrine, but the reality is, is he is spreading false doctrine. You say, what do you mean he's spreading false doctrine? He is, a, he is basically saying to you that God is waiting to zap you whenever you do something wrong. He's also conveying to you through his words that, number one, there is a condition to God's acceptance of you. And is there a condition to God's acceptance of you? No. So that's unintentional false doctrine being brought out there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Unintentional. So you and I have to be on guard, but the only way for us to be on guard is to be mature in our faith. And the only way for us to be mature in our faith is to see what Peter says brings about maturity. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look. We're in Lesson 10. We're looking at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love this Scripture. So look with me, first of all, the introduction, verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, here's what I want you to see. First of all, the writer, Peter identifies himself as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know this is very common of the apostles. They did not struggle with ego. They did not struggle with ego. They didn't just show up and say, Hi, I'm the apostle Peter. What's the first thing he says after his name? What does he identify himself as? Servant? The word is actually slave. So he didn't have an ego problem here. And then he refers to himself as an apostle. But it's not... The, re, the reference to that is not so much the title, but his function. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not addressing himself in terms of his title, but his function. Now, the apostle Paul does the very same thing. When you read others, Jude or James, they do the very same thing. They, you know what they do is they place themselves down because they're not the reason. They're not it. Now, isn't that interesting? How do we do that with leaders today in our churches? What do we do? Yeah, we, we raise them up. We put them up on a high pedestal. And then when they fall, as they always will because they are human, what happens to us when we put them up on a pedestal? Yeah, we get discouraged, we get devastated, we get blown away. It's like, why did that happen? So I want you to see, so he identifies himself as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now here's who he's writing to. He writes to those who have experienced salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now who's that? He obviously is writing to somebody there who are Christians, but we could be included in that too, is it not? This is an eternal letter. It's the eternal word of God. So he's writing, not just to the folks back then, but he's writing to you and I. It's, he's writing to those who have experienced salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now here's the greeting he gives. He's going to give a greeting. It's a standard greeting. Paul, Peter pronounces the standard blessing of grace and peace. You notice Paul does the same thing. Grace and peace. And some, some scholars will say it's a standard blessing because peace is how Jews shalom 
would greet each other, shalom, which meant peace, and grace was what, I guess, what Gentiles would greet each other with, Greek Gentiles would greet each other with. So he's giving a standard blessing of grace and peace. Now, here's what I want you to notice. The next thing he does, and I think this is very profound, he points out that this comes through an intimate and personal knowledge of God. Let me just stop for a moment. Look at what he says there. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied in you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, the Greek language is a little bit more precise than our English language. In fact, there are several words that are used for knowledge in the Greek language. The word that is being used here is not a knowledge of facts. So simply studying about Jesus knowing as much as you can about Jesus is not going to produce grace and peace in your life. So he's not talking about the accumulation of facts. Because I'll be honest with you, you can meet people who have a lot of facts about Christianity, but their life be nothing. What he's talking about here, the word that he's using for knowledge here, is an experiential knowledge. It's a growing knowledge because of, and we would describe it as because of a relationship, is with the terms we would use today. So it's a knowledge that increases simply because of you being with that person. So for instance, let me give you an example. You know, I met Lori in 1991. She came over to a Super Bowl party at my house. I've told you that story before. I was interested in her. She was interested in my microwave. I mean, that's just the truth. All right? Now, my understanding of who Lori is now is a whole lot greater than when I first met her back in 1991. Do you understand what I'm saying? 18 years ago. Yes, we've gone through three microwaves, yes. When that microwave dies, she says, this is the reason I married you, you better get another one. So, no, this, we're just kidding. Okay. Now, but listen. Even my knowledge of her increased even in the dating relationship from the initial. Why? Because I have spent time with her. There is a relationship there. You can think about that with your own spouse. You understand what I'm saying? You begin to know each other more. And you. And here's the thing. It's not like I completely know her. She is continually surprising me. I'm continually surprising her. Just when she thinks she's got me figured out, she hasn't. Just when I think I've got her figured out, she hasn't. Isn't that true in our relationships? We're always surprising each other. Why? Because we are growing in our, just so you understand, we are growing in our knowledge of that person. Does everybody understand me? We are growing in our knowledge of that person. So what does that mean? So when he talks about grace and peace being multiplied in you through the knowledge, he's talking about that it's coming out of an experiential knowledge that you have with that person. You understand what I'm saying? And so this is very this is very important, so I want you to understand. Christianity is an experiential knowledge with Jesus. It's not the knowledge of facts. In fact, here's what, what would Paul say? Knowledge by itself only does what? It puffs up. Knowledge without love is nothing. So you've got to be careful because you can get into the mindset of thinking, well, I'm okay because I know a lot. And listen, when you hang around churches for a long time, and when you sit under teaching for a long time, you, you get to the place where you know certain things over and over and over again. 
and, and you know stuff up here. And you can think you're okay as a believer because you know stuff up here. But the issue is, my friends, in Christianity is not what you know up here. It's what you know in your heart. That's reality. And that's where growth comes from. So it's an interesting thing that he will start out verse 3 now through 4 and talk about the divine provision. Look with me, verse 3 and 4. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here's what I want you to see. We're going to look at three main things in this, these two verses. First of all, the divine power, the divine promises, and then the divine participation. So first of all, the divine power. Peter describes this power as coming from God. So he's saying there is a power that is given to us that is divine. Now the word divine means what? God. Godly. From God. A God-like character. So a divine power has been given to us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Does anybody, can anybody tell me what that divine power is that's been given to you? Holy Spirit is what Bruce said. Holy Spirit enters into your life the moment you come to him through salvation. So a divine power has been given to you. Alright? Now, here's the purpose. Power was given to provide us with everything for a godly life. Listen, you have everything you need through the person of the Holy Spirit to live the life that you need to live for Him. And you know what? I hear people all the time say, well, you know, I, you know, I want to be a good Christian and I want to live for Jesus, but I'm not like so and so at church and you know, and I, I'm just, I'm just lacking. You know what? You're not lacking anything. What you're doing is comparing. You understand? You're comparing, and the comparison trap will always defeat you. Because here's the problem with the comparison trap. The problem with the comparison trap is that there's always somebody who's doing better than you. You understand what I'm saying? Always somebody who's doing better than you. Let me, let me put a plug in for a book for some of you. Search for significance. It's a great book, and in that book he describes several traps, and one of the traps that he describes is called the performance trap. And the problem with the performance trap is, is you feel that you have to perform in order to be accepted, and the problem is, is there's always somebody who outperforms you. There's always somebody who outperforms you. So the comparison thing of comparing yourself with others, here's the problem. Don't do it. You don't need to worry about it because the same Holy Spirit who indwells you indwells that other person. You're just at different levels. And listen, God reveals Himself to you differently than He reveals Himself to other people. It's based upon how much you can handle at the moment and your level of maturity. So let me just stop for a moment. Is everybody here on the same level of maturity? No. Some of you are saying, yeah, it's definitely true in my house. When you look at your spouse, you can say, I'm more mature. Yeah, right. You know, here's the point I want you to see. The reality is, He's given you everything you need for life and godliness through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we do. We struggle, big time. Here's what we struggle with. God, I can't live this Christian life. Can't do it. You need to help me. 
He's already given it to you. Wrong questions. What's the questions I need to be asking? Holy Spirit, you, have, you are in my life to give me everything I need. I need your help right now. Show me what I need to do. You have equipped me and are equipping me. Help me to be the person you want me to be. See, that's the purpose. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not just a seal to the day of redemption. It's not just a guarantee that you're going to get heaven later on. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is for your life right now. So that you have everything you need for life and godliness right now. See, listen, if you're defeated and if you're saying it can't happen, you're looking to the wrong person. He's already given it to you. Reminds me of a story. Let me tell you a story. It's a mission story. It came out of a missions publication. There was this missionary who, who, a few years ago, went to the field. And when he went to the field, the denomination gave him a vehicle. So he, when he went to get the vehicle, the other missionary said, well, this thing's got a problem, and here's what you need to do. You need to always park it on top of hills, and then, you know, when you, when you, when you get ready to go, open the door and put your foot out and push it over and then kick it into gear, and it'll start up. And so he had to go through this whole process. And so every time he would go somewhere, he'd make sure he was somewhere where he could, or there'd be a group of people to push him so he can get this vehicle going. A few years later, they still got the same vehicle. They're not like us on the mission field where we're changing vehicles all the time. A new missionary comes, and this missionary is going to go home, and he said, oh, yeah, you can have this vehicle. And he says, but I've got to show you how to operate this thing so it works every time. So the young missionary is there, and a guy is explaining all this to him. And the young missionary is kind of listening to him, but not kind of listening to him. And he reaches inside, and he pops the hood, and he looks under the hood, and he says, oh, here's the problem. It's a loose battery cable. And then the article went on to say this. The power was always there. The problem was with the access. See, my friends, the power for you to live the Christian life is there. He has given you everything that you need to live for life and godliness. The problem is with our access to it. You understand what I'm saying? The problem is with our access for it. So let's go on. Here's what I'm saying. So that's the purpose. The power is available through the intimate knowledge of Christ. Now, here's, here's how... Remember, I made such a big deal that knowledge there refers to... Knowledge refers to the relationship and experiential knowledge of Christ rather than the knowledge of facts. You are going to understand the empowerment you have not by studying theology, although studying theology is good, but you're going to understand the power that you have by the growing relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. See, listen, my friends, here's what I want you to understand. It is not an option for you and I to decide, well, I'm not going to spend time with Jesus today. It's not an option. Because you're basically saying, by not spending time with Him, by not talking with Him, I can handle it on my own today, Lord. Let me ask you a question. How many of us can really handle it on our own today? And if you think you can, just wait. Because life will throw something at you, and you'll realize real quickly you can't. That's just reality, isn't it? That's just reality. And believe me, when life throws something at you, you're doing what? You're running back to Him, aren't you? But see, it doesn't have to be that way. You can establish a relationship with Him, and through that relationship with Him, you can understand the empowerment that God has given you to live the life that you need to live. Okay, so there, there we see the divine provision. Let's look at the issue of divine promises. Peter tells his reader that God has given us precious, has given us the precious promises of salvation. Now listen, I'm going to stop for a moment. We're talking about spiritual maturity here. 
when he talks about he has given us divine promises, it's really easy for us to read into that the promises that he's going to provide for us, the promises of this and that or another, that have to do with me you know, enjoying life. But that's not what the kind of promises that he's talking about here. He's talking about specifically the promises of, listen to me, salvation. And what salvation gives us. And one of the promises that he's given us is the promise of who? The Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? See, actually what you're going to see here is when we look at, listen to me, when we look at the issue of the divine power, the divine promises, and the divine participation, all three of these things that he has provided us come through one person, the Holy Spirit. He's the forgotten one. Latest statistics, quoted this to you before, but is to me is very troubling. When 46% of evangelicals don't believe that there's a Holy Spirit anymore, there's a problem. That's basically saying that most of us, a good number of us, are living our lives without any concept of the Holy Spirit in our lives and His importance to us. Now, you say, why do you keep stressing that? Because remember what Jesus said in the upper room. He said, I'm going away. You can't come with me. I'm going away. But, I, but as I go away, I'm going to send to you another what? Comforter or helper. Who was he talking about? The Holy Spirit. See, this is the reality. So here's what he's saying. Peter tells his reader that God has given us... Let me stop for a moment. Wasn't that a promise? That was a promise, wasn't it? See, he's given us divine... Precious promises, hasn't he? All right, let's go on now. Look at the divine participation. Through his power and promises, we are able to participate in God's nature. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Some of the other religions of the world, especially New Age thinking, would have you to believe that you will become like God, in the sense of becoming God. I mean, maybe you've seen the clip of Shirley MacLaine on the beach in Rio de Janeiro in a movie saying, I am God. She's going to find out real quickly. She's not. Now, here's my point. I want you to see that Christianity does not teach that. Christianity does not teach... The Mormons believe that. You are not going to become a god. This is not what he's talking about here. However, when he talks about us being able to participate in the divine nature, he's talking about several things here. He's talking about, number one, that we become like Christ. That's our ultimate goal, is to become like Jesus. Christ in us, the hope of glory, is what Paul would say. We become like Christ. The other thing is, is that the divine participates in our life. See, the difference between you and the average person is, as a believer, because the Holy Spirit lives in your life, as you yield to Him, the Holy Spirit lives through you. So it's not you becoming a God, but God living through you. That's what divine participation is. Does everybody understand me? It is God living through you. You are His hands. You are His lips. You are His eyes. You are His feet. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's you becoming like Jesus and Jesus living through you through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's divine participation. But see, we don't talk about that. Do you understand? We don't talk about that. We don't even talk anymore about being like Jesus Christ anymore. Have you noticed that? We don't talk about that anymore. But that's really our goal. See, this is what the process of sanctification is. The process of sanctification is you becoming like Christ. You becoming like Christ. Okay, let's go on. So then, here's the reason why. 
Through his power and promises, we are able to escape the world's corruption. Look at what he says in verse 4. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What's lust? Lust is not just a sexual desire here. It is a passion for the things of the world. It is you desire... I mean, you can lust after a cheeseburger, believe me. Some of you can lust after chocolate. And we joke about that, but I'm serious. You can lust after a car. You understand? You can lust after football or clothes. It's not just a lust for another body, but it talks about strong desires that consume you. Period. And so here's the thing. Those strong desires that consume you lead to what in your life, everybody? Sin and the corruption thereof. By being a partaker in the divine nature and becoming like Jesus, I am able to what? What's he saying here I'm able to do? Escape that. See, some of you are defeated by sins in your life. The first step is repentance, acknowledging and turning from it, asking God to help you overcome it. And then he helps you to overcome it because he's given you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has been given to you to escape it. And it's called living in a relationship with him. Here's my challenge for you this week. Now, this may disturb some of you, but that's fine. But you need to be stretched. Here's my challenge for you this week. I want you this week, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to live your life acknowledging the presence of God with you through the person of the Holy Spirit. So don't ask him to be with you. He's already with you. Don't ask him to give you what you need to live the Christian life. He's already there with you to give you what you need. You need to begin to live your life with an acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit of God is with me, within me. And listen, and you don't need to spend a lot of time explaining yourself to Him. He already knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Because why? Because the Bible describes very clearly in Proverbs, who can understand a wicked heart? We can deceive ourselves because of the wickedness of our hearts. So what my, ta- my encouragement to you is, and don't worry, I won't be checking homework next week, but I'll be honest with you, you'll be able to tell. What do you mean I'll be able to tell? When you begin to acknowledge the Holy Spirit in your life every day, you will change. Period. Bottom line. That's it. You're going to change. And you're going to walk in obedience and you're going to see victory in your life. It's time for us to start acknowledging Him, isn't it? So, okay, so here's what He does. He tells us about the divine provision. Now He's going to talk about growth in spiritual maturity. Because here's what happens. God has given you all of these things. God has given you all of these things so that you can grow in spiritual maturity. And so here's what He's going to do. Look with me at verses 5 through 9. We're going to talk about growth. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has, was cleansed from his old sins. Okay, let's look here. First of all, there's a call to maturity. 
Therefore, we must make every effort to mature in our faith. Listen, if you're the same way you were when you first got saved, there's a problem. You say, what do you mean? I'm saved. I'm okay. No, no, no there, there's a problem. Let's say you got saved ten years ago. And if you're the same level of maturity spiritually as you were ten years ago when you first got saved, there's a problem. There's been no growth in your life. You've got to understand something. That, let me give you a human illustration. Everybody loves babies, right? Unless it's three o'clock in the morning. Everybody loves babies. And if you have a child who developmentally is still like an infant, there's a problem, isn't there? If they're 10 years old, they need to be like a 10-year-old. If they're a 20-year-old, they need to be like a 20-year-old. If they're a 40-year-old, they need to act like a 40-year-old, right? Because there's a level of maturity that's taking place there. The problem is, is if you have somebody who's been in the Lord for 10 years and they still act like a newborn, there's a problem. In fact, remember the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians because they should have been eating meat, but they were still, what? Drinking milk. They were still sucking from the bottle. So, here's the point. You have to mature. So, we must make every effort to mature. You must make every effort in your life to grow spiritually. Now, you say, why do I need to do that? Because growth is manifested in becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, let me just stop for a moment. You're going to notice in this passage, it doesn't say a stopping point of maturity. So let me give you a warning. There is one extreme where you never grow. The other extreme is where you think you've arrived. The one extreme is, is that you never grow, and so you've got a baby in a, ten, you know, a, a baby in a 10-year-old body, or a baby in a 40-year-old body, or a baby in a 60-year-old body. The other problem is, is that you get to the place where you think, I've arrived, I know everything, I have matured, there is nothing more for me to learn. That expresses something. And we're going to see what it says here in a moment. Because the reality is, listen to me, these things need to abound. That word abound means continually grow, continually be manifested in your life. Maturity needs to continually happen. So let me just say, I'm a learner. I'm always learning. In fact, I have learned some things just this year about me that I didn't know the prior 20 years. And I'll be honest with you, when God revealed it to me, it set me free in some things. Just being honest with you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I couldn't have handled them 20 years ago. There's no way I could have handled it. But in His grace, He reveals to me so that I could take that next step in maturity. So here's what he's saying to us. We must make every effort. You say, I don't know that I could do that. Well, you've got to go back to verse 3 and 4. He's given you the power. He's given you the promises. And he's given you the participation to be able to do it. So you've got to make every effort to mature your faith. So here's the thing. Spiritual maturity is the product of character development. You know what the most important thing is? It's not what you do, it's who you are. Do you hear what I'm saying? The most important thing is not what you do, but who you are. You may want to write that down. It's not what you do, but who you are. 
And, you know, this is something that's getting lost in the whole issue, especially in spiritual leadership in churches. The issue in spiritual leadership is not what their gifts are so that they, we can look and see what they're able to do for the church. The issue in spiritual leadership is what is, who are they? What is their character? What does their character say about them? So, for instance, let me give you an example. There's an ongoing debate in our church. I don't know why we have this debate, but for some reason we seem to have this debate that when a pastor falls to sin, sexual sin or maybe robs or something, we then turn around and say that after a two-year process, we could be able to let him come back into a pulpit. Now, here's the problem I have with that. There was a character deficiency that led to the sin. You don't wake up in the morning and decide, I'm going to have an affair today. I'm going to rip off the church I'm serving. You don't decide that. That is a character problem. And let's be honest, is character developed overnight? How long does it take to develop character? Lifetime. Years. In fact, somebody once told me, maybe there's somebody here, it said it's the difference between a poplar and an oak. How long does it take to grow a poplar tree? Not very long. How long does it take to grow an oak? What wood is more sought after? The oak. What gets the most money? Maybe not very much these days, but I mean, what, what, what gets the most smoke is oak. It's a better wood, isn't it? See, that's the difference. You, we are wanting to develop our character. You understand? It's not what you do, it's who you are. It's not what you do, it's who you are. So spiritual maturity is the product of character development. So let's go on then. The results of maturity, as we mature, our lives will be marked by spiritual fruit and intimacy. Now I want you to notice with me, if you look at verses 5 through 7, I want you to notice that the things that he's saying that we need to add to our faith, if you take that list and go over to Galatians chapter 5 to the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to find that a lot of the things that he's saying that we need to add to our faith as we mature are the very same things that Paul tells us are the fruit of who? The Spirit in our lives. I don't think that's a coincidence. Because remember, I told you that the key force behind verse 3 and 4 is the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit works in our life, we're going to add maturity to our life. And that maturity is going to be manifested in the fruits of the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? So here's what I want you to see. So my life is going to be marked by fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and aren't those some of the things that he's saying that I need to add to my life? So, here's what I'm saying to you. It's going to be marked by that intimacy. Now, here's the thing. Now, here's the warning. Look with me at verse 9. He's going to give us a warning here. And here's what he says. If we neglect to grow, we are spiritually blind and ignorant of salvation. You know what? Put a star by that verse, verse 9, in your Bible. This is an important verse. This is to the person who's not growing, or the person who thinks they've arrived. If you are at either one of those points, or even somewhere in between, and you decide that you don't need to grow anymore, you don't need to mature anymore, that you're not a learner, that you have a long way to go to be like Jesus, 
He is saying several things to you. Number one, he's saying you are blind. You are spiritually blind. And You know, when I think of spiritual blindness, I think about the church at Laodicea. And how you get there is you get complacent and self-sufficient. You think you're able to handle it on your own. And so, so number one thing is you're spiritually blind. And number two, you are ignorant of salvation because salvation has what? Nothing to do with you. My friend, spiritual maturity is not a product of you. It is a product of the work of the Spirit in your life. And so don't you ever think you got to there. Because listen, perfection only comes one way. Being with Jesus. So it either comes with you dying, or you going to be with Him. You understand what I'm saying? You going to be with Him because He comes back. All right, let's go on then. So here's the exhortation, verse 10 and 11. Look with me at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, make be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to see. First of all, eager determination. We are to eagerly live in such a way that we express our faith and salvation. You need to be eager to live your life in such a way to make your calling sure. What's your calling? Salvation. You need to live your life in such a way that you know I'm a believer. I'm maturing. Because the Spirit of God is working through me. Now here's what he's saying. Because there's a future reward. And here's the last point. Growing in spiritual maturity will result in a glorious reward from Christ. Man, we have so missed it because we have reduced salvation down to I've escaped the fires of hell and I'm going to walk the streets of gold. You know what? You need to quit listening to music that just tells you that. Because there's a whole lot more to the Christian life than that. You need to listen to me. What we do here now affects later on. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're either laying up for yourself wood, hay, stubble, or you're laying up for yourself gold, silver, and precious stones. And it will be judged later on. And if you are growing in your maturity, Peter says, if you are growing in your spiritual maturity, you are going to have a glorious entrance into the kingdom of the eternal Christ later on. Isn't that a wonderful thing to look forward to? But you know what? Here's the thing. We lack perseverance. We think short-term now. And we need to start thinking long-term about later. What will it be when I see Jesus? That's what I'm saying. Next week we're going to see the instrument. How? What else is he use? Talk about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's work is in our life. Next week we're going to see the instrument is, this, is the Word of God. Let's close our time in prayer.